0: This morning I want to share with you the final of our three-part series of messages, brief series on the places of Christmas. We've been focusing on communities, on towns. Uh, One of them completely unknown to us in the Old Testament and looked down upon and derided in the New Testament, and that is Jesus' hometown of Nazareth where he grew up. He moved to as a child and lived there until he began his public ministry at approximately the age 30. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. As we were saying, we began in Nazareth, a town of uh, no great repute. And then last week we moved down as uh, Joseph and Mary moved down to Nazareth. Uh, They were required to be there to, of course, uh, be part of the census. But it seems that they took up home there in the shadow of the power of King Herod. We saw the Herodium last week towering over Bethlehem, casting its shadow across the birthplace of Jesus Uh, On those certain mornings of the year as that shadow uh, came from the east But this morning we are going to continue part of the christmas story that That some people say well, it's after christmas in fact It's like 40 days after the birth of jesus And yet we remember the arrival of the magi and they always show up at our christmas manger scenes when Probably they didn't arrive in bethlehem until a year year and a half or more after the birth of jesus so I think uh, jesus at the temple can certainly be counted part of the Christmas season. And the place itself we're going to focus on this morning is the temple precinct, the temple mount itself. And we'll begin reading, setting the scene for that as Jesus, now approximately 40 days old, arrives at the temple mount with his uh, parents. And we find that in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. We read, On the eighth day, When it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of dove, or two young pigeons. Scripture tells us that Jesus was born under the law and that through the perfect life he lived, he fulfilled the requirements of the law. And then dying on the cross for we sinful, lawless people, he broke the power of the law to convict us of sin, the power of sin and death. But Jesus fulfilled the law. And in here we see begins at the Temple Mount as a firstborn Jewish male going through all of the requirements that uh, were called upon at that time. Uh, Circumcised on the eighth day, part of the sign in the flesh that he belonged to the covenant people. And then following the time of purification, 33 days later, uh, Mary and Joseph took him to be presented in the temple. Remember the firstborn male, it's as if they had to buy back that child from God. Uh, The Levites gave their firstborn males in service to the temple, but everybody else generally sacrificed a lamb. Except the very poorest, God made provision, God provided, that the poorest could sacrifice two doves, or two pigeons. And Joseph and Mary being among the poorest of the poor, that is the sacrifice that they gave there at the Temple Mount. Many people not understanding that the lamb was the little baby she held in her arms. This morning we focus in on the Temple Mount. And I've called the message, The Temple Mount God Provides. Now, if you're at home, I'm asking the guys in the booth to make this picture of the Temple Mount full screen. You don't have to see me for a couple of minutes while I'm talking. But we look at the Temple Mount, and that's a wonderful view from the northeast of the uh, of the city of Jerusalem. There is the Great Temple Mount during the time of Jesus, as built by and expanded on by King Herod. In the background, if the picture is a little sharper, you can see there's large buildings in the distance. That is the uh, that's the fortress of uh, King Herod the Great back there. Uh, You see how steep the Kidron Valley is down below. I like this picture because you really get a sense that it is built on a hilltop. And that's so important to the story today. The Temple Mount is a mount. Now, remember, when something's called a mount, as we'll see today, Mount Moriah, that word in Hebrew is har, and it doesn't mean a mountain as we see in the Canadian Rockies. It means an elevated place. It can be a hill, something is taller than the surrounding regions. The Temple Mount itself, Mount Moriah, in fact, is. Uh, got a taller hill, Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives in the east, and to the west is what we call Mount Zion, the hill of Zion, both of which are in fact taller than Mount Moriah. But God chose that hill, that mountain, to build his temple on. And it has a long story in scripture of which Jesus' arrival as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, his arrival in the arms of his mother on that hill, is so important. Now from this picture we'll go to another one to show you the same platform as it stands today. The basic thirty eight acres of that platform and the retaining wall still exist from the time of King Herod. And I like this picture because you see how steep The Kidron Valley is below, and that there's actually a valley on the other side of the hill, that it's actually a rocky ridge that uh, Mount Moriah was. That is it. In the distance is Mount Zion. If you have really sharp eyes, you'll see a gray dome uh, above and a little bit to the right of the Mount, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and that is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So there is Golgotha outside the ancient city gates. All right. Well, that is our geographical lesson today that's the hill uh, that the temple mount was built on but now we want to look at why it's so important in scripture briefly as we get back to the story of jesus at the temple mount the first point we make today is that hill enters into scripture as we learn that god provides the sacrifice that spot that very spot in all the world teaches us the lesson of god's provision that we who need a sacrifice are unable to do it for ourselves, so God will provide the sacrifice. And that's significant in this passage. This passage goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, and it's the story of God's testing of Abraham as he asks him to sacrifice, be willing to sacrifice his son, the son of promise, his son Isaac. We'll not read the whole story. We'll look at a few verses from it. The first two verses of Genesis chapter 22 set the scene. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He's testing his faith. Abraham, the father of faith. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The region of Moriah and God hones in on a certain hill later known as Mount Moriah. Well, the story says that they load up the donkey and Isaac himself carries the wood. But as they're going, Isaac notices that one thing is missing. Abraham has the fire, carried uh, the embers, the charcoal, the burning coals, carried in a clay pot. He has the knife to take the life of the animal for sacrifice. And, and Isaac knows he has the wood, but the animal itself is missing. We see that in verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here Isaac said but where is the lamb for the burnt offering Abraham answered God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son and the two of them went on together God will provide This is the faith that Abraham had. He was going to do exactly as God said, something that normally is is repugnant and awful. Human sacrifice is never called for in scripture. That's something that the, the worst of the pagan groups did. But Abraham was trusting God that he would provide. And so they go to the place and they go to the top of Mount Moriah, that stony outcropping. And he lays his son on a roughly fashioned altar. They put the the, the, the wood around it and, and he binds his son and lays him down and he lifts the knife. And then verse 10 says, Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So that is the legacy of Mount Moriah from the beginning. Trust God. Put faith in Him because God will provide. Now imagine Jesus coming to that temple mount for the first time at 40 days old, only having received His name, Jesus, Yeshua, at 8 days old at His circumcision. When he was given the name, Yahweh is salvation, God provided. And God took the Lamb of God and presented him on that hill to fulfill that legacy that the Lord will provide. Well, Genesis chapter 22 talks about that stony outcropping. And just to remind us what the top of Mount Moriah looks at, Looks like rather today, here's a picture inside the Dome of the Rock. Uh, The very peak of Mount Moriah is all that sticks above the temple platform of Herod's time. And uh, for 1,330 years, the Dome of the Rock has covered that stone and stood over it. And you see that stone, there's some flat spots. We'll see those a little closer later. That's the edge of the Holy of Holies where the stone was carved down to fit in the uh, the temple building, the Temple of Solomon. And But the peak itself where Abraham laid Isaac still stands today as the bedrock uh, sticks above the hill of Moriah underneath the dome of the rock. Now to continue to look at Mount Moriah in Scripture in the Old Testament, the second point is that not only does God provide the sacrifice when needed, but God is a God who delivers. And in this case, God delivers his people from a terrible plague. Now we know this is right near the end of the story of King David. He's an old king, and he's been through the wars, and yet it seems at this point in his career, Faith was becoming a little more difficult. It seems that David, as many kings did, he wanted to put his faith in the strength of man, especially in the strength of his armies. And so against his better judgment and against the uh, advice of his uh, counselors, David declared a census throughout all of the 12 tribes of their fighting men so he could know and take pride in and put his faith in how strong his army is. And of course, that angered God and he was angry with the nation and he offered to punish David. He said, David, you have to choose the punishment. He says, there'll be great famine for three years or your armies will be defeated and you'll fall into the hands of your enemies, the other nations for three months or you fall into my hands and I'll send the great plague upon the land that will only be for three days. And David threw himself in the mercy of God and he said, Be it far from me to fall into the hands of man. I want to fall into God's hands to be punished for my sin. And so for three days, a plague rages throughout the land. We come upon the end of that story because it says the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, arrives at the city of Jerusalem, the capital of David. And it's the end of the three-day period and God in his mercy relents and tells the angel, Uh, the death angel to hold his sword and then through the prophet he calls on david to go out and meet god where the angel stands at mount moriah and that's the story we pick up we find it this account before we go to first chronicles though this account will take place at a threshing floor The top of Mount Moriah, because it's that flat stone, it's a threshing floor. And again, we want to make this large for the people at home. This is how threshing floors worked. First thing you needed for a threshing floor is a hard, flat ground. The bedrock atop Mount Moriah was perfect for it. But you needed it on top of a windy hill. Because as you see there, they would let the sheaves first dry, and once the sheaves were dry, they would throw those bundles, break the sheaves open, throw the grain on top of the large, flat, hard, circular place, and then beasts of burden, donkeys, or oxen would pull heavy wooden sleds over the grain, separating the kernels from the hulls and the stalks, the chaff. And then on that windy hill, they would take with their winnowing forks and throw it up into the air, have the lighter chaff blow away, and then they would sift and gather the kernels of grain. And on the hill just above the city of David, Jerusalem, there was a threshing floor. It happened to be owned by a Jebusite. Remember, before David conquered the city, it was owned by the Jebusites. And this threshing floor was the very top of Mount Moriah. Well, seeing that threshing floor, that sets the stage for 1 Chronicles chapter 21 as David meets at the threshing floor of Mount Moriah. It says, verse 18, then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad, that's the prophet, to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word of the Lord that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arona was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached. And when Araunah looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. The plague of the people may be stopped. So sell it to me at the full price. Araunah said to David, "'Take it. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this.' But King David replied to Araunah, "'No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice the burnt offering that costs me nothing.' So David paid around a 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. An amazing passage that sees how this site of the sacrifice of Isaac is now transformed into a place where God delivers his people from the plague of death. This of course, becomes a site that eventually is going to become the temple site. This threshing floor, once again, we want to go back inside the Dome of the Rock and look at the top of Mount Moriah, the next photograph. You see an overhead picture of the threshing floor, uh, the flat, tall area. It's squared off again, once again, because when they built Solomon's Temple, they uh, squared off the edges, and those uh, edges are exactly the the. Uh, dimensions of the holy of holies in fact in the center of that we see an indentation the exact measurements of the ark of the covenant uh, that sits there that sat there but you can see how it was a threshing floor now if you look at that picture on the right hand side look at the stone and you see a hole in it with golden light shining through it that's shining from beneath it there's actually a cave underneath the rock in the dome of the rock And it's called by the Muslims the well of the souls. But it actually was a granary. Because the threshing floor, once the grain was separated from the chaff, it was swept through this hole into the cave underneath to keep it safe. And that was a granary. And so we see all of these biblical threads tied together there. As we not only see God providing the sacrifice, but God delivering his people from death. Death caused by sin. It all comes into focus as we see this site now becomes the holiest spot in Judaism as the temple is built on the site. Now it becomes the temple. And the temple, though it's a building, it's a teacher. The temple, by its very construction, the architecture of it, teaches us the lesson of sin and what sin costs. The temple teaches of sin and the cost of sin. Now you see that picture there. To me, that's a heartbreaking picture. There's still groups, uh, Samaritans and so forth, and and, uh, halal uh, sacrifices to bleed the animals for consumption in, in Islam, where the animals are sacrificed with a knife. And I look at that picture, that goat, that goat with the knife at his throat, that's ready to be sacrificed. And you know, it touches your heart because that goat is innocent of anything. And it's going to be sacrificed for the sin of somebody else. We should never forget that though the temple was tall and beautiful and clad in white and gold, it was a great engine of death and bloodshed. The temple was there to teach us the price of our sin, that the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, no remission of sins that's what the temple taught all of the years that it stood innocent blood shed for the sin of mankind well going back briefly to chronicles in second chronicles chapter 3 we read the following of the purchase of the temple it says in the first few, two verses then solomon began to be, solomon began to build the temple of the lord in jerusalem where On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Mount Moriah, the place of Isaac's near sacrifice, where the Lord provided the sacrifice, the place where God delivered his people from a plague caused by the king's sin. And now it becomes the place of the temple where heaven and earth meet and men bring their sacrifices to the Lord, recognizing that they are sinners in need of salvation. Now, a couple more pictures briefly shown here. The first is that Mount Moriah soon became a platform. As you see, those are different stages of that great temple platform. The smaller walls in the middle, those were built to flatten and enlarge the area during Solomon's time. And then a little further out, those were built during the time of the Maccabean kingdom, the two centuries before Jesus. And finally, the dark blue is the great temple platform built by King Herod. You, still, you see, it's still Mount Moriah. That hill that God chose is still underneath there. It's still shows as you look very close that that is where the temple is now as we see uh the next picture as we go on uh this is the temple construction itself this is again once again the temple of herod and as you see the temple in the center it's like a box within a box within a box it's like chinese puzzle box you have a one box and then you go through it and there's another box you open it there's another box over the years at uh, christmas time sometimes there's trading gifts uh, work and family gag gifts and oftentimes there is that great big box that has something very small in it there's many 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 smaller boxes well that's how the construction of the temple was but all those barriers and all those walls were to teach us the lesson that we were sinners that we could not come into the presence of a holy god we were kept out there was no admittance because of our sin. As you look at that great platform, the words are too small, but the outer courts, those are the court of the Gentiles. Now, to get to the court of the Gentiles, you didn't, didn't just walk into the temple. There were lines of baptistries and the great pools that you had to immerse yourself into. You had to be baptized every time you went onto the temple mount and you walked up those tunnels and arrived up onto the platform. Uh, you were wet and you would soon dry out, but you couldn't just go there. There was a lesson. You were unclean. And then even that platform, the Gentiles were kept away from the temple buildings proper in the middle by the great balustrade, the wall. Uh, We've seen the signs in Sunday morning services before that said for any Gentile that crossed that barrier, they had only themselves to blame for their immediate death. But even the Jewish people going through the beautiful gate, they could only go into the court of the women. And that's as far as the Women could go. The Jewish women could go no further. The Jewish men could go into the next court where the altar was. That was the court of Israel. And they could see their animals sacrificed for their sin, but they could go no further. They couldn't go through the temple doors. Only the priests could go through the temple doors into the holy place. And then the final barrier, the great veil, Josephus says it was as thick as the man's hand is wide. It was so heavy that it took a squadron of priests to even pull it aside once a year for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. Now in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about the superiority of faith in Christ to Judaism and how our high priest Jesus is superior to human high priests. But in doing this, he talks at length of the Jewish temple and what it served, the purposes it served. One of those passages in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, he writes, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. That's the holy place with the great candelabra and the table of showbread and so forth, the table of incense, to carry on their ministry. Verse 7. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. Once again, the Holy of Holies taught us that we were sinners and God was holy, and we needed shed blood to even have a chance to come into his presence. And we're told in the next chapter, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never... Is this the right passage? Make sure. Yep, the first four verses. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices... Oh, this talks about the futility of the sacrificial system. For this reason, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. It can't do it. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sin, The blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system, can remind us of our sin and tell us that the wages of sin is death, but they can't take away the sin. We needed a better sacrifice. We needed the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Sacrifices never ended over and over and over. The guilty consciences of the worshipers were never cleansed. And that's why God sent Jesus. And that's why He needed to come to that mountain, the mountain that reminds us that God provides, to the place where we learn that the cost of our sin is the shedding of blood and death. And finally we know the Lord provided a Savior. The story of Simeon, the man who was promised that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He recognized that the Lamb of God, the one who could take away the sins of the world, the Christ himself had finally arrived. Going back to Luke chapter 2, a little further down, verse 25, as baby Jesus in the arms of his mom is there on the Temple Mount. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you do now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Finally, the promise all the way back to Abraham and Isaac that God would provide the sacrifice had come true In the very spot the promise was given. The Lord provided his salvation. Oh Jesus, so sweet and small. If it pains our hearts to see innocent goats and sheep sacrificed. This is the spear that was going to pierce Mary's heart. That that was prophesied to her. That the innocent one died for the guilty. This baby would grow up and be our savior. And that he would go to the nearby hill of Golgotha and pour out his blood for us. A sacrifice once and for all. And by doing that, scripture tells us that all of those walls and barriers put up between God and us by our sin, Jesus broke them down. He opened the way. Jesus opens the way back to God. Jesus often referred to himself the divine title I am the name that God gave to himself to Moses at the burning bush a name of self-existence a divine name but he would enlarge upon it I am the way I am the truth I am the light I'm the light of the world I'm the living water Jesus is the way he's the way to God there is no other way to God Matthew chapter 27 says that when Jesus died on the cross, on the hill of Golgotha, something extraordinary happened at the top of Mount Moriah. Verse 50 of Matthew 27 says that when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit at that moment. That curtain, the final barrier before the Holy of Holies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The way was open. Extraordinary. Jesus opens the way through his death for us. Hebrews chapter 9, going back to Hebrews chapter 9, it makes this clear that his sacrifice was the only one that could take away sin beginning in verse 11 we read when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man made that is to say not part of this creation he did not enter that is the holy place his father's presence he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves but he entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He's not sacrificed again and again, once and for all. Eternal redemption. The price for our sin was paid. Now it's up to us at this Christmas season to receive that gift, to open our hearts fresh and new, or if you're listening at home and you have never opened your heart to Jesus, You don't know that gift firsthand. You can do so today. You may think, well, there's got to be a lot of different ways to God, living a good life, religions are all basically the same. That's not what God's word reveals to us. Remember, Peter and John were hauled up on charges of disturbing the peace before the Sanhedrin, the very same people who weeks before had condemned Jesus to death. Their charge was healing a man born lame. And in that great defense the apostle Peter in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12 reveals to them that there is no other name Acts chapter I think that verse is on the screen. There we go. <laughs> he says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's exclusive. He's the way the truth, and the life. Salvation is found in no one else and there is no other way. Mount Moriah and its legacy to us that God will provide has come true. That God will deliver from the plague of death caused by our sin. That's come true and it's been fulfilled in Jesus. So friend, today, that salvation that's offered through no one else is received by faith alone. Putting your faith in what Jesus did for you. That when he died on the cross, he paid for your sin and mine. And that God raised him to new life that we may live for him forever. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, the classic passage says, I'll begin reading a little earlier in verse 8. Paul writes, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Paul's talking about faith that is acted on. The confession of faith is not only with our lips but with our lives. We live out what we believe. and We believe in Jesus alone. The places of Christmas, we started off in a place of no fame, no repute, no Old Testament history, the village of Nazareth. Jesus chose to live in the dark place to shine his light. Jesus was born in fulfillment of prophecy in the city of David, in the shadow of the might of King Herod. The true king was born, the king of kings. And finally today we see he came to that mount, a mount that was promised that God would provide The ones for all sacrifice to take away the sin of mankind. The story of Christmas and the journeys of Christmas are amazing things to us. Let's embrace that truth once again. And if you at home are praying for the first time, or you want to learn more about how to put your faith in Christ and to have eternal life, contact us here at the church. You can do it via email or call the church number. Go to our website. There's lots of ways to find us. We'd love to talk to you. Once again, a reminder, folks, that in just a few short days, it's going to be Christmas Eve. Uh, Tune in to the YouTube channel if you can. Take part of that Christmas service. Uh, I just want to invite you to... The time will come later in the service. There's going to be candle lighting. So just as we ask you at home to prepare uh, your bread and your cup for communion time, we're asking you to have candles available. Turn the lights down. Sing along and join us for that Christmas Eve. Till then, uh, let's close this time together with a word of prayer let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word it's an amazing thing lord Lord, the story of salvation we see abraham the father of faith lord he had faith in you that you would provide a sacrifice and he was spared having to give his son his only son and yet lord in your love for us that's just what you did You gave Your Son, Your only Son, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, we thank You that His sacrifice once for all opened the way to You. Lord, a holy God, we can be in Your presence in Your very family through faith in Christ as we're cleansed from our sin and given a new heart. Lord, we thank you for that good news that comes to us at Christmas time. We thank you that the incarnation was the beginning of Jesus' journey to another hill from Mount Moriah to Golgotha. And Lord, he did it every step of the way in faith to you and in love for us. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas message. May we take the hope that we have in this dark time, Lord, and shine it in lives and hearts around us. Lord, now dismiss us from this time of worship to our places of service. We ask it all in Christ's loving name. Amen. God bless.